You're listening to Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. Today's topic, Key Themes of Liberation Theology, Part 2. Let's get into the discussion. So episode 7, episode 7, BCRI Train of Thought Podcast. We've slowly processing this liberation theology thing, trying to give you guys a, a proper foundation before we actually get into the Black liberation theology, <clears throat> which is very prevalent today. You know, you can call it woke theology if you want to, um, but it's very, it, it, it has reared its its head again. And especially with this Black Lives Matter movement and all the accusations of racism that are floating around now and liberation theology actually now has a platform where it can jump back into the fray because it had disappeared off the scene for a while. <clears throat> but now um, it's, it, it has the opportunity to come back. And right now it's coming back through this whole wokeness or what Duran and I used to call back in the nineties, that black consciousness, um, which is, was, which it was a little different. It's not the same as this woke theology that's going on now. It was more so just a recognition, recognition of our, our blackness and our heritage and just trying to empower. It, it was a little more positive than what's going on now. So, um, Although it did have its negative qualities to it, but it was a little different. But now this this whole woke movement has come out, and so we felt it was important to address this theologically and biblically, because um, there's more than enough people trying to address it politically and socially with all these different ideologies out there. So we just wanted to be a, a different voice in the fray so that people could get the the godly ideas of what is wrong with liberation theology what's wrong with black liberation theology and so last week we uh, dealt with the first four points and there's actually nine points i didn't see one when i was going through it so it's actually nine points and we did the first four points of the themes of liberation theology last week so now we want to get into these last five and uh, of course we you guys know how our podcast goes. We just kind of off the cuff have a discussion about these things and we go where we go. So we're going to get into this now with point five, which has to do with the, the Holy Spirit. Okay. So point five, again, this is from the book, Introducing Liberation Theology by the Boff family. I'm not sure if they're brothers, uncles, father, son, or whatever they, they might be, but the B-O-F-F, that's who wrote the book. So point five is the Holy Spirit, Father of the Poor, that's what they call him. Holy Spirit, Father of the Poor, is present in the struggles of the oppressed. That's point five, point five. It says, like the Son, the Holy Spirit was sent into the world to further and complete the work of integral redemption and liberation. But again, the issue is that they define, as we have told you several times on this podcast, they define uh, 
redemption and liberation differently than the Bible defines it. Okay. So he goes on, he says, the spirit takes hold of persons, fills them with enthusiasm, <laughs> endows, <laughs> endows them with special charisms. Uh, now, if you don't know what charism is, it comes from the Greek charisma. And yes. that's, yeah, that's all it is, just uh, the Greek. They're, they're just using a fancy term for gifts. Is that's that's all. So it says the spirit takes hold of persons, fills them with enthusiasm, endows them with special charisms and abilities to change religion and society, break open rigid institutions and make things new. Okay. So already off the bat, they're describing the Holy Spirit in a way that the Bible does not. <laughs> right. Right, right from the jump. Okay, because the Holy Spirit's mission uh wasn't he wasn't sent into the world like Jesus Christ to further and complete the work of integral redemption and liberation. That's not even why he was sent. He was sent to save. <laughs> now if you're talking about redemption in the sense of being bought with a price, then okay. If you're talking about liberation in the sense of being delivered from sin, then okay. But that's not what they're talking about. Which is why I read that next paragraph. This is this is how they think the the Holy Spirit operates. The Holy the Spirit takes hold of persons, fills them with enthusiasm, whatever that means, endows them with special charisms and abilities to change religion and society. Now, if you go to First Corinthians twelve, it's clear that the, the gifts are for the edification of the church, not for society, not for the changing of religion and society. The the spiritual gifts were meant to build up the church, to edify the church, to be used in the church. So they rip this operation of the Holy Spirit out of ecclesiology and they put it into some kind of sociological operation that the Bible does not even speak about the Holy Spirit doing. Okay. So then he goes on, he says, the Holy Spirit becomes a participant in the struggles and resistance of the poor in quite special way, in a quite special way. Not without reason is the spirit called father of the poor in the liturgy, in their liturgy, right? Giving them strength day after day to face up to the arduous struggle for their own survival and that of their families, finding the strength to put up with a socioeconomic system that oppresses them. None of this <laughs> is biblical. Okay, one that they have no hope of changing from one day to the next, helping keep alive their hope that some things will get better and that united, they will eventually set themselves free, set themselves free. I hope you caught that. Yeah. If you're, if you're listening to this podcast and, you, and you're carefully listening to what these people are saying, notice set themselves free. Okay. So right here off the bat, we see that their pneumatology is way off and, they're, and, and they've ripped something out of ecclesiology, which belongs to the church, and right. now they're trying to tie it into society. I know you got something to say, brother. So, Yeah, you know, one of the, it, it's, again, when you're dealing with a movement that obviously is speaking about biblical terms, then the best place to go to qualify if those terms 
in fact, are related to the Bible is, is the Bible itself. Um, you know, so liberation theology, they, again, they don't make any apology for we're, 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 we're a Judo-Christian concept in our minds, Judeo-Christian concept in our minds. And so we, you know, we have to go to the text to see if what they're saying is true. And I would say even a place like John chapter 14, when you're looking at John 14 and you look at, you know, you begin to look at verse 16 and it is Jesus's promise to ask for God, the father to send the Holy spirit. And in there, he says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. So the Holy spirit's efforts are co-joined with Christ, which is why as a movement, if you want to redefine what the Holy Spirit's doing, you have to redefine what Christ is doing. And then it says, that is the spirit of truth. Now we're told not only who he is, but what his ultimate function will be. He's the spirit of truth. It says whom the world cannot receive. Hmm. So when you're dealing with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, especially as it relates to kind of differentiating between liberation theology and biblical Christianity, um, you first have to understand that not everyone receives the Holy Spirit. And so he's sent by the Father. He's not given to man by man. Man doesn't usher him in. Man doesn't plead for him to come in. And then he shows up. He's given to man by God. And so it says that is spiritual and the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. Jesus is specifically dealing with his disciples primarily, and then by extension, all who believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved by grace through faith. Um, and then he continues on. I'll jump down to, uh, I'll jump down to verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then after answering Judas Iscariot's question about obedience, he goes further. Look what he says. Um, he qualifies who believers are in verse 24. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. Now watch this in verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while abiding with you. Verse 26. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. So the, primar the, primarily, uh, the primary function primarily is for the Holy Spirit to point believers to that which Christ has said. So it's not to topple any socioeconomic issues. It's not to deal with um, societal upheaval. It's to remind believers primarily of what Jesus has said and what Jesus has done. If you look, uh, the peace which he is saying to leave is because of the world, is because of the world's, uh, the world's proclivity to join with the chaos of the adversary Satan. So if you look at verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives to, uh, do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Why is he saying that? He's saying that because he's not, sending the Holy Spirit to create peace among the world. He's sending the Holy Spirit in spite of the world's chaos. And the fact that the world's chaos exists has nothing to do with the Holy Spirit's uh, effectual ministry among the saints and his indwelling in the hearts of believers. And so, you know, he's not coming to eradicate 
that which does not make for peace in the world. He's coming to establish in the hearts of the believers the commandments of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so those commandments are not only told in Scripture plainly because the Lord tells us to obey them, so they're plain to us and they're not burdensome. Jesus says that about his own commandments. But the Spirit's function and purpose is to convict the world of unrighteousness and of sin, to seal believers unto the day of redemption, and as it relates to teachings, to point to the very teachings of Jesus Christ and to remind them of those teachings. And so he point he takes that which belongs to Christ and reveals it to the believers. His goal is not to take that which belongs to society and launch individuals into societal activities. That's that's not only an argument made from absence, but by the implication of what he does not come to do in terms of uh, what he what he doesn't come to correct or eliminate. He's he's completely distinct in his ministry and function from what society is doing at all. Right, and to and to further support what you're saying there with scripture, um, go all you gotta do is skip over to John 16, and it talks about the the Holy Spirit's role uh, as as it has to do with the world. Okay, uh, John chapter 16, starting in verse seven through I'm gonna read through verse uh, 14 or 15. He says, but I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, in reference to the Holy Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Okay? Secondly, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And then thirdly, concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Now, he says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own initiative but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. So you see there, just from, plain, just from a plain reading of the text, and it gives you the roles of what the Holy Spirit is coming into the world to do concerning sin, concerning righteousness, and concerning judgment. Those are the Holy Spirit's focal points when it has to do with the world. Now, we could go to other passages to talk about his role as pertains to believers in the church, right. but, but, but these guys are aiming right now, they're aiming at what the Holy Spirit does in the world. You know, we just read to you a two passages of scripture that shows you that the Holy Spirit is not in the world to do the things that they claim to do. Right. 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 Yeah. Because, you know, and and this can be said even, and it has been said, you know, even in dealing with the charismatic arguments, but, but it can be said about societal arguments that the Holy Spirit is, he does not point to himself. He does not call attention to himself for his own purposes. He is bringing attention to the words and work of Christ. He's pointing to Christ. He's disclosing that which ultimately belongs to Christ and to God the Father. 
Um, and yet he is the third person of the divine uh, trinity. And so, but yet he's taking that which belongs to Christ and he's revealing it. Uh, he's revealing it to the, and, and, and that's not without qualification. As you have said, Chris, that his function in the world is not simply to at large join himself to the world's causes or else he wouldn't be much of a Holy Spirit. Um, you know, the world itself is a place that will eventually come under judgment. So the Holy Spirit's work is not to try to cause some beautification or restoration of the world's systems and ideologies mm -hmm. uh, on behalf of man. Um, it's mm -hmm. actually to bring that which has already been decreed to pass. And so there, you know, as you said, it's a very just it's a simple, plain reading. But again, you know, they brought him in. The, the the liberation theology ideology has brought the Holy Spirit in. We simply have to explain to you the distinctions that are made in the text. Right. And I mean, they, they kind of have to. I mean, they in any any false or opposing theology will tend to pattern themselves off of the one true one. So they'll have an anthropology, they'll have their own ecclesiology, they'll have their own eschatology. As Absolutely. we'll see when we get to black liberation theology, that they they will have they write their own systematic theologies, but they use our pattern basically. Right. You know, theology proper, the doctrine of God, pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, you know, hamartiology, the doctrine of sin, but right. but they put their own spin on it. Okay, as as we see here in the next point, and this this is actually shows the, the Roman Catholic influence on liberation theology at the outset. However, the church wasn't as involved at first as as it would would seem. Although, you know, the the, the major denomination down there in South America is the Roman Catholic. Uh, denomination. However, um, a lot of liberation theology, if you read the history of it, had more so to do with political schemes, political ideologies, social ideologies like trade unions, um, uh, things like that. You know, the farmers, the migrants, um, um, communism, socialism, populism, fascism, mm -hmm. guerrilla warfare. So, yes, the Roman Catholic Church did try to develop this theology, but uh, they weren't as prominent as these other things are, but they did try to give liberation theology some life. They tried to give the, the liberation of the poor and the oppressed some feet, as we can see. In, and we can see their influences in this next point. It says, Mary is the prophetic and liberating woman of the people. It's point six. Wow. Mary is the prophetic and liberating woman of the people. Says the people's devotion to Mary, which they are, okay, down there, most definitely. Mm -hmm. The people's devotion to Mary has deep dogmatic roots. She is the mother, mother of God, the immaculate conception, the virgin of Nazareth, and the one human being taken up into heavenly glory in all her human reality. So he goes on and he, he makes some points about, I know you're ready, but, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I want to read these points right quick. Cause he yeah, makes, some, he makes some points about 
what, what he means by that, basically. So he says, in the first place, all the theological greatness of Mary is based on the lowliness of her historical condition. In other words, they identify with her because she didn't have much. In essence, is, is what they're saying, because she was just an ordinary person. Okay. And then in the second place, it said, Mary is the perfect example of faith and availability for God's purpose. Now, of course, I would argue that's Christ, but, you know, in, in, in their theology, you know, Mary is, you could probably say, almost equal, almost equal with God in a sense, you know. So he, he says persons can be liberators only if they free themselves from their own preoccupations and place their lives at the service of others, as did Mary, Jesus, and Joseph. Right. And then in the third place, Mary is the prophetess of the Magnificat. Now, I want you to listen to how <laughs> they mangle the Magnificat's interpretation here. It says, anticipating the liberating proclamation of her son. Now, again, I know I've said this several times and you may be tired of hearing it, but they use the term liberation constantly. That's how they get you liberation and oppression and poor. Those are three words that are constantly used in liberation theology, okay? So she says, anticipating the liberating proclamation of her son, she shows herself attentive and sensitive to the fate of the humiliated and debased. In a context of praising God, she raises her voice in denunciation and invokes divine revolution in the relationship between oppressors and oppressed. Now, last time I read the Magnificat, yeah, I thought it was just a song of praise. Yeah, I mean, what they do with it, that is, that's patently false and it's dangerous. Um, because for one, you know, when you begin the Magnificat in Luke chapter one, verse 46 to 55, when you look at that, First, where Mary starts is where every man begins, the need for a savior, the need for one to be redeemer, the need for your Lord. And that's how she addresses the one whom, of whom she's speaking. So her priority is not society at all. Her priority is the forgiveness and grace that's granted by the Lord, where she says in verse 46, my soul exalts, exalts the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my savior, for he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. The humble state is not the idea of humble beginnings of some kind of economic disparity that she felt between herself and her contemporaries. It's the fact that she is a sinner in need of salvation by her God, by her Lord, by Jesus and his sacrifice to come on behalf of sinners. And thus, since she needs to be redeemed, he has exalted her in the sense of in her salvation in the very same way every other believer who is elect by God is exalted in their salvation in Christ. And so, for behold, from this time on all generations will count me blessed. How? How are we counting her blessed? Because she is par excellence, she's above all others? No, we count her blessed because she belongs among all those who name the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. For the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name and his mercy is upon generation after gener generation toward those who what? Fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in the thoughts of their heart. 
He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. Now, I'm going to read verse 53 or verse, uh, yeah, verse 53 as well. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. Now, from there you would say, oh, wow, that seems like an argument in the other direction. Mm -hmm. Well, not at all. What she's referring to is not the humility of revolution, of societal revolution or communist revolution. She's talking about how these rulers have breached the trust and the function for which they were established and that they showed themselves to be against God and against the people of Israel. And so the humble is exalted by their salvation, by their faith in Christ, by the fact that he has redeemed them and has not charged their sins to their account. That is how the humble is ultimately exalted. So I'll tell you the perspective that's here is eternity. It's an eternal perspective, not a societal one. And so uh, the good things that the hungry is filled with is his salvation. It's not simply food. Because it rains, God causes the, the, the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. Mm -hmm. And so if she were talking about you know food and treasures and riches, there's people who should be categorized under this movement as the oppressors, and they're enjoying all the same things that the oppressors enjoy. Mm -hmm. Not talking about temporal things, not talking about you get to eat a steak and I simply get to have a piece of bread. He's not talking about that. He's talking about those who have salvation. She's talking about those who have salvation versus those who do not. And I, I always, you know, I, I always have to say here, even that who wrote scripture, the divine author, the Holy Spirit. So what is his function? He's not calling attention to society or himself. Through Mary, he's calling attention to the very works of God and specifically of Christ. And it says it even more. He's given help to Israel, his servants, talking about Israel. So liberation theologian, it's not talking about you. It's not talking about what you think is being accomplished on your behalf, for your purposes, for your country, for your nationality, for your regime. It's talking about Israel. And it says in remembrance of his mercy. And how do I know that? Verse 55, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. Who's the seed of Abraham? All who believe in the Messiah, Abraham believed in. Abraham, Jesus said about him, saw my day and rejoiced. So this is, Jesus showed that he is the God of Abraham, that he is the, he is the Lord of Abraham. That was his contention in John chapter 8 with the Pharisees that they were claiming to belong to Abraham. They were claiming he was a crazy man for saying that he saw Abraham. And so I tell you that what Mary is doing is she is exalting God for the salvation in Jesus Christ that has been granted to her by his mercy. She's not exalting God for dethroning powers that are against, uh, capitalist powers that are against the communist ideology, or she's not exalting those who would cause oppression toward the uh toward the poor and disenfranchised versus the rich and those who are well off in society that's not what she's saying at all these are spiritual matters spiritual things and a straightforward reading does not mean over spiritualization she's literally leading into the very things that are going to take place as it relates to the birth of the lord jesus christ and he's called emmanuel God with us. He will save people from their sins. He's not called social revolutionary who will save people from their oppressors. 
And so she is completely in step with both Old Testament prophecy and that which is to come in terms of her son's function as the redeemer of first Israel and then of all the Gentiles who believe on his name. Yeah, I, <laughs> this is just amazing to, if, if you guys are like listening to this, like I'm listening to my brother talk, it, it should help you to see the stark contrast between the biblical interpretation of the things that Mary has done or any other passage, like in reference to the Holy Spirit or Jesus Christ, the, the actual biblical interpretation and the interpretation of these so-called liberation theologians. It, it's just, it's so far off. Right. Okay. Yes. Yep. So he goes on, like, like here's the explanation. They used uh, uh, Pope Paul VI. And then this is his interpretation. Then we'll move on to to a, a final point concerning Mary. Um, he says, she was a woman who had no hesitation in affirming that God is the avenger of the humble and oppressed who pulls down the mighty of this world from their thrones. We can recognize in Mary who stands out among the poor and humble of the Lord, a strong woman who knew poverty, suffering, flight, and exile situations that cannot escape the attention of those who with an evangelical spirit seek to channel the liberating energies of man and society. I mean, it almost sounds like new age stuff, but channeling yeah. energies, energies yeah. of what? Yeah. My, my greatest desire, as you have stated, and as you stated, Mary said the same thing. My greatest desire, I know it's your greatest desire and, and the other brothers of biblical Christ research is to our greatest desire to see people saved. Absolutely. I mean, if, 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 if you're able to go from a poor status to a middle class, great. You know, if, if, you know, you're able to reconcile with another ethnicity and prejudice goes away, that's great too. But ultimately, <laughs> That our greatest desire is that you would see God face to face one day, Absolutely. because all of these other socio these socioeconomic things can change all they want to. But if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you have not believed on Him, if you have not repented of your sins, you have a far more tragic situation coming to you in the end when He returns than what you are experiencing right now. Now, that's not to slight anybody that's poor or anybody that's feeling uh, condescended upon or anything like that. But ultimately, we care about your souls. And this is why we take the approach that we take uh, when we deal with these different ideologies, when we deal with these different theologies, when we talk about the scriptures or anything. Our ultimate concern is your soul. Absolutely. So it goes on. And he talks about basically how idolatrous <laughs> it is in Latin America, because he says, finally, Mary is as she appears in the popular religion of Latin America. There is no part of Latin America, which is true, in which the name of Mary is not given to persons, cities, mountains, and innumerable shrines. Okay. So this 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 whole yeah, sense of what they call it, uh, uh, Mariology, yeah, or, or what or what Protestants call Mariolatry, which is 
idolatry of Mary. Uh, He says, Mary loves the poor of Latin America. She took on the dark face of the slaves and the persecuted Amerindians. She is the Morenita, the little dark girl in Guadalupe, Mexico. She is Nosa Senora in Nosa Senora da Aparecida, bound like the slaves in Brazil. She is the dark complexion virgin of charity in Cuba, and so on and so on and so forth. And he says the list is endless. So this this Mary in, in this liberation theology down in Latin America has just become whatever to whoever. Absolutely. It should, it should be called the kidnapping of Mary. I mean, that's what it should mm. be called because it's taking her life out of the context of what the scripture actually says that, you know, was her heart's disposition toward her Lord, toward Jesus himself, um, whom she was, you know, she wasn't the mother of his divinity. She was the mother of his humanity. So if we start there, even as we begin to discuss uh, Jesus Christ himself related to Mary, I believe that that would fix a lot of the thinking that would lend her, uh, you know, stop lending her to the cause of quote unquote liberation theology. Mm-hmm. So now we, we, we get off of, of that subject and we go into ecclesiology a little bit. Right? Point seven it says the church is the sign and instrument of liberation. Now, again, what liberation are you talking about? Right. <laughs> Well, let's find out. Okay, he says, from the beginning of its presence in Latin American history, the church has spread its influence throughout the people. It was often an accomplice in the colonization process that entailed the disintegration of Amerindian cultures or American Indian. Is that they're like shortening it? But it has also proclaimed freedom and taken part in processes of liberation. Okay. So at least they admit here that the church didn't always have a good role <laughs> mm-hmm. in, in, in the process of liberation right? Right. because they participated in the colonization of the American Indians. But then they also, what they're saying is also they took place in the processes of liberating people in society. Okay. So at least they have the honesty to admit that the church has not always, they're not trying to glorify the church right. as if they've always been, always been advocates of liberation. No, they, they admit the, the evils that have been done as well. So he says the best way of evangelizing the poor consists in allowing the poor themselves to become the church and help the whole church to become truly a poor church and a church of the poor. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> you know, when you were reading that, that it's, it's something that we've repeated in previous episodes. It shows you, and, and it's going to be true when we start to deal with black liberation theology. And, you know, some people don't want to make the distinction between black lives matters and the black liberation uh, theology movement, but I would say that both of them are probably closely related in some ways, although one could ascribe to the one and not really realize why. But, you know, one of the things is, you know, every every parasite needs a host, mm. and every scientist needs that which it can experiment on. 
or upon. And so, you know, for liberation theology, it needs a hypothetical poor and it needs to continue to talk about the poor man because that's its host. That's what it's joined to. That's, that's how it feeds uh, and that's how it grows. And so it's not so much, you know, even listening to what you're reading, brother, it's not so much that they've come with all these solutions for the poor. It's that they've come to depend on the poor so much as another oppressor that they have to continue to hold the poor in opposition to any societal upward mobility. And so even tasking them, even changing the very nature of the church, because all of a sudden when the poor show up in the church, you're saying the church is now poor? Like when do the poor ever get to experience something outside of poverty? But it, it goes back to what you were saying in the last episode, if, if, or either the last episode or the episode before that. I mean, we said so much. I mean, yeah. but, but it goes back to what you said. If they, they have to keep people in that state. Yeah. Because once people get freed from that state now these people no longer yeah. have a voice yep. and now now that they don't have a voice they can't make that money right right <laughs> right so so poverty is to latin american uh based liberation theology with frustration um revisionist history and angst is to black liberation theology in the states man this is this is tragic man yeah, I'm like they can't even change the church. They're so they they're tasked with changing the world. And that they show up in the the church is rich before they show up, and then the church becomes poor. Yeah, it's like you take over the church. Yeah, it's like you're deferring to the poor, like somehow. And this is I'm not. We're not insulting the poor. I'm not, not at all. No, they are very smart. They're smart poor people. That's not what I'm I'm saying here. It's but they're they're saying like in order for the church to be the church, they need to get the poor in. And so the poor can tell them, you know, how, how to. Well, one of the first basis is so that we can remain poor. I can tell you, unless you're dealing with someone that is hyper liberation theology, even the poor people who may be listening to this would all probably agree. I don't like my conditions. I would like to change my condition. Some of them might say, I don't know how to change my conditions, but I certainly don't like being poor. You, you won't meet many people who are poor who say, give me more things so I can teach those things how to be poor. And that's literally what liberation theology is saying, that yeah. you know, you're never going to be liberated from poverty. You're only going to, going to make people who are rich understand your cause it's like they're, that's, they're that's coming hopeless. that's that's societal hopelessness yeah it's like they're coming in and 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 you're like okay mr poor person tell me how to how, how we as the church can get you out of this poorness and they're like well if i knew that i wouldn't be poor <laughs> so you have to become poor <laughs> right. you know you <laughs> so it, it, yeah so my yeah so my solution is for you to become poor with me and then maybe we could figure a way out of it together. No, that's not. <laughs> At best, that's a bad business deal. Oh, yeah. At best, if you went into business with somebody, listen to me out there. If you went into business with somebody and they said, come put your money with mine and we're going to go bankrupt in a few months just so we can learn how to do business together. If you don't run from that business deal, I'm telling you, but that's what liberation theology sounds like. It just sounds right. like we're going to theorize about liberation, but you have to remain in a in a uh, in a poverty-stricken situation 
in order for you to gain the maximum benefits out of the system. Now, now I do agree with their point that there needs to be a convergence between the church and the community. You know, yeah. I mean, the church, oh, absolutely. The, absolutely. Church, the church shouldn't just be planted in the community and then it just keeps to itself. That's, 100%. That's not why we're there. We're Yes, we're there to feed God's people on Sundays and midweek services and whenever else we meet. But then we're also supposed to be equipping our people to go out into that community to so proclaim, I would say it proclaim is, the it gospel. Is, it is the effect of the church. It's not the priority of the church. Mm-hmm. So the effect of the church is certainly to go out and, you know, if you meet with individuals who are disenfranchised, like the individual Christian's heart should be bent toward compassion to think about it, the, the state of its fellow man. Um, but within that, it can't be that. So that's your ecclesiology, not your soteriology. Mm-hmm. Feeding the poor is how you would do things because you want people to not be without. You don't want people to have lack. However, you're not saying, since I have fed the poor and since I have experienced life among the, those who are experiencing poverty, I now have gained a certain standing with my God. Mm. Uh, that's the difference between what I have just described as biblical Christianity looks at it as its function within the church, whereas liberation theology looks at it as its right standing before God. This is how I attain to righteousness. Okay. So there's a difference. Yeah, right. Like at one particular church that I attended in Jacksonville, um, there was a lot of homeless in the area because it was it was downtown Jacksonville. Those mm-hmm. those who those who are listening from Jacksonville probably know which church I'm referring to, downtown Jacksonville. Um, so, um, like several times throughout the year, they would have the homeless come because there was a big grassy area right across the street from the church mm-hmm. and they would set stuff up like um haircut health checks uh clothing food and all of that which was great but they also made sure that these these uh what's the word i'm looking for the homeless i, I was just trying to find another word but the the homeless they uh, they also made sure they heard the gospel they also made sure they sat down with them and proclaimed the truth of God's word to them. You know, they called them to repentance. They, it, like you said, it wasn't just they went out and said, hey, look, see what we're doing? We're helping the homeless. Right. God, are you happy with us, God? Because we're helping the homeless. It was no, we're right. doing this out of compassion for the homeless. But at the same time, we care about their souls. And, and, and that's, that, that's vital to understand, Chris, because, you know, when Jesus made that statement that we talked about last week, when he was, um, when he was referring to that lavish act of the woman pouring the vial of alabaster on his head as an act of consecration and worship. Mm -hmm. And Judas makes a fuss about the poor. And essentially Jesus says the poor you will always have, um, you know, it's, that's not a political situation, so to speak, although certain political ideologies can make those conditions more prevalent, but the poor will be there under any system. The poor are going to be poverty stricken under whatever system uh, that exists, whether, and I'm talking political and ideological systems. Um, so even when people come along and blame the church for poverty, the poor, they're always going to be there. The right. goal is salvation. And so there may be some who God has made in this world 
who they experience poverty for different reasons. There's not a one catch all situation why people are poor. And then there are people who are rich in this life. But we also know that the love of money, it's harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. We know that there, there's dangers for those who are rich, just as there are dangers for those who are poor. So we have to be clear when talking about the era of liberation theology. The goal is not to eradicate poverty, and, and the goal is not to eradicate wealth. The goal is to teach the believer wherever they are to be content because they're looking ahead to an eternity where they enjoy the eternal treasures and riches of Jesus Christ uh, in his kingdom. That, that is, that's really, you know, that's really what this is all about. And that's why I say, yeah, I mean, the, the church does have a function in society where in their sphere of influence, they can cause certain uh, societal restraints from running their course in the life of those who may be, you know, poverty stricken and other things, but that that's not what brings approval to God for the church. What is commended to God for the church is that they are founded on Christ as the head of the church and are holding firmly to apostolic doctrine and also living out those things according to that truth, fighting against error. I mean, you can see all the things that even the warnings given to the churches in Revelation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, so so I, yeah, I do think that there is a certain um, there is a certain task that the church does have in society, but it's not its priority and it's not its you know, you don't base your doctrine of salvation on how many people you fed over the last few Sundays. Right. I mean, honestly, like you said, the, the riches of Christ are far greater, far uh, greater of a treasure than any material wealth or absolutely health or anything. That's absolutely. just far greater. And that's what we should be pointing people to. I mean, that's Matthew six. Absolutely. That's, that's what we should be pointing people to. Not, not, you know, like you said, Jesus said the poor would always be with us. So in essence, <laughs> he's basically saying, um, yeah, you're not going to fix that. Not, I mean, and he's not, yeah, he's not saying it in a way like to, to brush the poor off. He's just letting you know, um, that's, that's not ever going to change. I mean, you could right. try to fix it as much as you want, but there's always going to be the, the poor, just like there's always going to be the rich and there's always going to be middle class. And then mm-hmm. there's, always going to be scales in between that. That's just how it goes. And the issue with a system that is fixated on that is that poverty is such a relative thing. Mm -hmm. When you look at, when you try to compare societies, like, you know, again, I'm not, I'm not mocking or taking lightly those who are experiencing, even during this whole pandemic situation, financial strain and, you know, all the stress that goes with that, you know, and, and even those who have become, uh, who have been, you know, become poor as a result of losing jobs and things like that. But, but poverty is relative from country to country. Right. It's different in India than America. Absolutely. So our poor, and some might look at, you know, they might be very poverty stricken as they listen to this and say, I, I, I'm, I'm poor. But, but even your poverty is, if you compare it relatively to other countries, what you have versus what they lack. Um, you know, the, and that's that's why, you know, when you use the term and build a whole theological system around trying to call some identification is such a relative state and it's a relative term. And honestly, my prayer is contentment because contentment in Christ changes the mindset that would otherwise lend itself to the conditions surrounding poverty. Um, 
And, you know, that doesn't mean a person becomes rich and their lot in life changes over time. The answer certainly isn't the prosperity gospel, which is a false gospel, Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also not this vicarious identification with the poor. And then you're trying to simply keep them in their position so that you can build a liberation system to help them recognize where they are and keep them where they are in a sense. All right. All right. So point eight, point eight, got two more to go. It says the rights of the poor are God's rights. Say that again. The rights of the poor are God's rights uh, that your antenna should just immediately go up on that. If, <laughs> if you're thinking biblically about this, your, your antenna should go up. So he says, theological reflection on the primacy of dignity of the poor, as explained in the last chapter, has helped to lead the churches to develop their concern for the defense and promotion of human rights. And he says, all who are unprotected and downtrodden find their guarantor and advocate in God. All. Says so the struggle for promotion of human dignity and defense of threatened rights must begin with the rights of the poor. Well, actually, no, it has to begin with Genesis chapter one, verses 26 to 27. Right. It has to begin with a proper anthropology. When we talk about the Imago Dei, where all, all are created in the image of God. That's where you start. You don't start with the rights of the poor. I mean, whatever that means, because they have the same rights as everybody else. Right. <laughs> I mean, you know, the Bill of Rights, Constitution. Right. They, they have the same rights as everybody else. Okay. They may not be able to access them as much, but they have the same rights as everyone else. So whatever they mean by the rights of the poor, uh, it's, it's not adding up to the, de- the, the, gov- well, the definition that, I'm presenting here, you know, they, they have rights. Okay. He says, they show us the need for a certain higher, higher causation of rights. First must come basic rights, which is the rights to life and to the means of sustaining life, food, work, basic healthcare, housing, literacy. They, they do have access to those things. He says, then come the other human rights, freedom of expression of conscience of movement and of religion. Okay. So so it's almost like they're trying to uh m- make it seem like the poor are are somehow lesser yeah uh, 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 beings yeah they're, lesser they're human setting, beings yeah they're setting they're setting the poor and the rich against each other in ways that have been indicative of human civilization, you know, where there have been class wars and other things. Whereas, you know, if you look at, okay, so Proverbs is perfect wisdom. And in Proverbs, there are warnings, even in Proverbs 22, uh, there's warnings about how you ought not to mistreat the poor and other things such as that. I mean, those warnings are there, but they're not there in such a way so as to anathemize the rich for being rich. Right. Simply being rich, that somehow being rich uh, anathemizes you. Amassing wealth is, is, is somehow a curse in and of itself. The Bible doesn't teach that. I will say that there is a common bond that the Bible teaches in Proverbs 22 
between the rich and the poor. And that's why I say under liberation theology, you know, it's important not to do as they do because they actually drive a wedge uh, between the two when the Bible actually brings them together in this. Look at this. The rich and the poor have a common bond. I'm reading from the New American Standard Bible Version. The Lord is the maker of them all. Hmm. And so somehow, again, I mean, we come back to, okay, is God somehow this unsure better who is placing his bets on behalf of the poor, but it's at the same time, he's rooting for the rich. You know, the, they, you know, the fact that they have a common bond, God is their creator, tells you that their bond is based on, as you said, Chris, Genesis 1. You know, it's based on what God has done in creation. And so you'll always have the rich just as you'll always have the poor. Mm-hmm. And God will judge those who use whatever condition they're in to oppose Christ. And so, but yet there is a commonality in, and, and this sets the stage of how do the poor and rich relate to one another? This, this by implication of the wisdom stated there in that verse, it shows you that it's, they don't try to overthrow, oppress, you know, cause societal upheaval from one to the next. So the, so the poor is not tasked with assassinating everybody in the country who's rich, and the rich is not tasked with oppressing uh, putting their foot on the neck of the poor so as to never have to intermingle with them. It's that the Bible is clear that both exist, both will exist, and God has made both. And so their business about uh, joining together in terms of how do we function in society is to recognize that they both bear God's image in them. And so, you know, any gospel, any theology, any movement that seeks to eradicate either one, uh, because honestly, the prosperity gospel, the word faith movement, they're simply another expression of liberation theology, just in the other direction. They're in the wealth direction. But the goal is not to, in society, amass all the wealth you can, nor is it to remain poor so that you are nearer to God's heart in terms of your economic status. It's that God's made them both. He's made them both. And there are rules that govern society that some have even taken their cues from what the Bible says under that worldview in some ways uh, that, uh, that seem to try to at least lessen the blow of poverty. Uh, mm-hmm. If you look at Proverbs chapter 22, verse uh, 22, do not rob the poor because he is poor or crush the afflicted at the gate for the Lord will please their cause, will plead their case and take the life of those who rob them. But it doesn't say that it's the rich robbing them. Mm-hmm. It just says, don't rob them. Right. And the reason is because they don't have anything. So why would you exploit those who do not have anything? And the liberation theologian might say, oh, okay, see, we have our point there. Now you just argued on, no, I'm arguing against you actually, because by you placing a theological system that only borrows from Christianity and has no power to save a man, you are putting yourself in a position of ideologically robbing people of salvation who don't have anything at all. And then if your system only hypothetically theorizes about uh, liberation and doesn't actually cause for them to be free, then you're selling them a bill of goods and you're not <laughs> going to help their condition in society at all. Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I believe that that leads into what is taking place even in the modern society as we see it in our in our country as uh, liberation theology has now 
uh, made its way here. And, you know, even the American dream that people are coming to America and, you know, I don't think there's an issue with necessarily life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I think when it becomes the priority, then I think then you have missed what it is to actually belong to the church. But when you have laws that give people property rights and things of that nature, I believe that those are good things. But again, that's not a system that is theocratic in nature, meaning God is the king of that system. And and, and they are, they do make a valid point that a lot of these action groups that sprang up in Latin America and even here now in America, it's like the ACLU and Black Lives Matter movement and uh, the, the Department uh, for the Defense of Human Rights, and that they all actually stem from this whole idea of the rights of the poor and the oppressed. They're right. they're actually not coming from a. I'm not saying it's necessarily. I'm not arguing that they're, they're necessarily a bad thing, unless they're driving um, a wedge, as you said where there should not be a witch. Yeah, and 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 and, and with, I, I can tell you, I don't know the percentages and it's probably good to maybe research them, but if you look at any system that even in the remote sense identifies with liberation theology, you'll find that, as you mentioned, action groups, they amass a certain amount of wealth um, by people's contributions, by people identifying with their cause, you know, I know, I know Black Lives Matters, uh, they're multi-million dollars, you know, they yeah. have multi-million dollar donations. I know, you know, all these, all these things are true of the liberation movements. And I'm going, you would think that the simple task of even functionally doing what they claim to do would include money, but it doesn't include commerce. It always includes setting before you your conditions in such a way so as to create a volatile emotional response, even if within yourself, and cause you to simply look out over the landscape of quote unquote oppression. Mm-hmm. Uh, to me, I would say the the proper action according to their own standards would be eradicate as much of it as you can in the sphere of influence that you have. I don't see that. If if Help me understand how a march and tearing down statues and all these other things are going to lend itself to the cause of liberating people from quote unquote oppression. I, I don't understand how that would be the case. I don't think, and it's not that I can't even say I don't understand because I do understand, but I don't find a logical jump that it takes to actually cause for a solution. And that's why, you know, even with respect to liberation theology, I'm glad we're talking about it because you have a lot of people who are emotionally invested in wanting people to be liberated but all they could come up with is the media's talking points you know i've asked people i've tried to help people see the connection between what they're thinking versus what has occurred in what has occurred in history mm-hmm. and you know maybe i need to talk to more people cuz the people i'm finding myself talking to who don't want solutions they don't even know the history of this movement right you know, but they're ready to grab the pitchforks and you know, they want to see society torn down, but they don't even understand where they are in the timeline when those things start to happen. Because they swallowed, they swallowed the revision. Exactly. Exactly. And so to me, I'm going, you know, in the same way that we talked about it last week, like, you know, if you want, if you want people to be liberated, you, you really fixate on 
the conditions that will liberate them. And I would even say bankroll that liberation. If you want people to be fixated on their poverty, you build a system that shows them how, how poor they really are. And, and, you know, I think that is what liberation theology, and that is what I think black liberation theology, because they're out for a cultural uh, poverty in people's minds. I think that they do a very good job of that. If they do a good job of anything, it's helping people understand how much they've failed. Yeah. No victim, no movement. So exactly. You need <laughs> victims. Yeah. All right. La- final, final point, final point. Okay. Number nine, liberated human potential becomes liberative. Right. It says Christians are faced with the social and structural sin of oppression and injustice. Under, under which great numbers of persons are suffering. This is the sin that festers in the institutions and structures of society, inclining individuals and groups to behavior contrary to God's purpose. So he says, and this is, this is what we talked about, the redefining yeah. biblical terms here. He says, evangelical conversion requires more than a change of heart. It also requires a liberation of social organization insofar as it produces and reproduces sinful patterns of behavior. This social conversion is brought about through transformative social struggle with the tactics and strategies suited to bring about, to bringing about the changes needed. Social sin, like, I don't even know where to get that adjective from, social sin. Social sin has to be opposed by social grace, fruit of God's gift and of human endeavor inspired by God. So even here now they've, they've taken soteriology and they've twisted it mm. and they've, they've added sociology to it. So now the requirement for you to actually truly be converted is not just to have a change of heart, but it's actually to go after the social institutions that are oppressing the poor and liberate the poor and the oppressed from those social institutions. And then not on top, uh, not just that, but then go and change those social institutions around so that now they're transformative and they actually help the poor and the oppressed. That That's true conversion according to, to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and you know, the, the, the first issue with that is, you know, if you make it more than a change of heart, like if you, if you, if you, you know, because honestly they can say that. And, and again, I think we would say that like the evidence of a changed life is actions, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you make it more than that. So if you say, well, a step beyond that is these actions, then when you, when you, you know, when you identify those things and de-emphasize the the matter of the change heart, the people running those institutions are not changed. And so, you know, you can do all you will if the people's hearts are not changed. And if that's not the primary matter that you're concerned with, then it doesn't matter where, you know, you'll find that oppression. You can't liberate anyone from that quote unquote oppression. Right. And that's why when they go up in that earlier phrase, he says, this is the sin that festers in the institutions and structures of society, inclining individuals and groups to behavior contrary to God's purpose. It's not, it's because of their, their sin nature hasn't been changed. Right. 
Right. This is because their heart has not been changed. This right. is just, it's just like you said, you can't expect them to just suddenly start doing what they're supposed to do if their right. if their nature hasn't been changed. Exactly. Exactly. So uh last the last little paragraph here talking about <laughs> when we talked about the kingdom last week. He says Lib- liberative Christians unite heaven and earth. The building of the human city with the eschatological city of God, as if the, the two go together. He says, the promotion of the minimum of life in the present with the maximum of life in eternity. They reject nothing that is truly human and has therefore been taken up by the Son of God. They do everything they can toward the full liberation that will be realized when the Lord comes to bring to its fullness all that men and women, and especially the oppressed, have brought about. So that's their eschatological view of what the kingdom is actually all about. The kingdom of God is actually an an enmeshing of the human with the divine. And yeah, you know, I, I think a good, you know, a good passage to deal with that. Were you were you going to say something else? Oh no no no, you good. You go right on ahead. A good a good passage to deal with that would be, you know, Hebrews chapter twelve because I believe Hebrews chapter twelve deals with some of you know some of what is being said. It provides a distinction between you know when you're talking about the kingdom, you have to understand how distinct the kingdom of God is from the kingdoms of this world. And that's not only just an abstract idea, that's in the functions of the kingdoms of of the world, the purposes of the kingdoms of the world versus God's, you know, it's all those things. But I wanted, I wanted to bring up uh, verse, verse 25, verse 25. And it is in direct contrast to what was just said by, uh, by Boff concerning uh, the manifestation of the kingdom and liberation theology, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 25 It says, see to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, yet once more, I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. This expression, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken as of created things, so that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all, for our God is a consuming fire. So it, it, it's not about merging human achievement, human functions, human social ideologies, with the blending of God's will in heaven for God, even in that passage. And again, a straightforward reading of that passage shows that God's purposes are to shake up the very foundations of all that belongs to the world's kingdom. That which remains will be that which he finds commendable. And by that, I don't mean anything dealing with man's, uh, with man's actual achievement upon the earth. It's that which is tied to him that he has deemed uh, according to his own pleasure. Right. It's not a societal shaking. It, it's it's not. It's an actual divine shaking that dethrones everything that is earthly and fleshly in favor of his heavenly kingdom. So, and so, so, so that would mean 
sorry to cut you off but that okay. so that would mean that even the societal the good societal things that do not glorify God would be shaken up as well. Ab- absolutely. Those things that do not lead to the actual ministry, salvation um, in his son, the glorification and honor of his son's name, those very things are going to be shaken and they will be consumed by him because it says about him that he's a consuming fire. And that's not the fire of purging. It is the fire of destruction. And so, you know, they're, they're, again, with every movement, as we continue to work through this, you have to look at the distinctions they make in the Bible versus the Bible's own distinctions that are made. Because I believe that, you know, a lot of people join to things because they fail to make those distinctions for themselves mm-hmm. and they allow their movements to make those distinctions. You know, liberation theology says a lot of religious things. They, they employ a lot of religious speak and a lot of theological terms, uh, but where they make the distinctions in the word of God are places where God doesn't make them. And then they also fail to actually promote the things in the areas where God actually makes distinctions. Again, here very plainly in Hebrews 12, where, uh, the warning is about apostasy and turning away from God and going back to those very things which God has already judged. Uh, mm-hmm. So, you know, it's it's not some blending of societal and human achievement. To me, that is, you know, in one sense, the expression putting the cart before the horse. You know, what we're not saying is that you sit back passively after you've been saved by grace through faith and you don't do anything in society at all. It's not what we're saying. Right. But your priorities and your expectations for society changes. So you begin to engage society on the point of a divine, uh, their divine standing before God himself. Not so much the conditions that meet with individuals who may or may not believe on the Lord Jesus. You're dealing with their eternity. And yes, you have to deal with people where they are. But you also have to consider that those are even temporal circumstances uh, whether it be government, individuals, you know, ideologies, you know, I, I just think liberation theology is not really concerned with the distinctions where the Bible uh, makes them, because then again, their their you know their system wouldn't really stand uh, in the face of what God is actually doing in His kingdom. All right. Any final word, brother? That's it. That's it. I pray that y'all continue to listen. You know, I pray that. This will continue to hopefully be an eye opener for some and an encouragement for others. Uh, we're, we're so glad to be able to do this and to, you know, open up the word of God and, you know, deal with this ideology. You know, I know my other brothers who are in this with me, you know, we want to see people really begin to come to come to terms with the text and, and, and see what they're dealing with in front of them. And so, you know, next week, I know the plan is to deal with uh, black liberation theology. So mm-hmm. I pray that that one will be a blessing also. Yeah, we, we are we are now transitioning from uh, the foundation, which is liberation theology. And now we're getting into, uh, we're going to be more specific and get into black liberation theology. We're going to have uh, Brother Eric, who was on episode three, talking about the constitution of man, whether man is a dichotomy or a trichotomy. And he'll be coming back on to, uh, next week to talk about James Cone because uh, I was talking to him earlier. He just uh, taught his his church about the um, theology of James Cone, and so we're gonna bring him on and wind him up and let him go 
cut him loose. <laughs> and he's gonna he's gonna talk about James Cone, and uh, we'll analyze James Cone's theology and how he came to the theology that he landed on. And then the following week, we'll get into uh, get a little deeper into the systematic theology of black liberation theology, because as I said earlier, uh, these theologies basically piggyback and use our categories such as theology proper, anthropology, hamartiology, pneumatology, soteriology, Christology. They use our categories, but they define things differently than than we would or they define diff things differently than the Bible itself would. And so we want to make sure that we uh, dig into these things and expose them, uh, analyze them, critique them, so that you can have a better understanding of why these, these ideologies are false. And then, you know, once we do that for, you know, two or three episodes, then we'll, uh, we'll end with, well, before that, we'll look at how, how, did, how these ideologies affect the black church. Um, so I have another another book that we're going to look at, Practical Theology for, for Black Churches. And we're going to kind of go through that and show you how Black liberation theology affects the Black church. And then our final episode on this series of, of things will be, we'll, we'll look at some selected scriptures. And we'll just go through verse by verse, exegesis, because we always... Whenever we do a series on this podcast, we want to end each series with the last thing you hear being the word of God. Okay, we don't want to end with our thoughts and or you know what somebody else said and and out of a book, a primary source or anything like that. We want to end each series of things that we tackle with the word of God so that you can hear the, the pure unadulterated truth from the voice of God himself. So we thank you all for supporting us. We thank you for your prayers. Uh, we thank you for your suggestions. And we, we pray that you would just continue to pray for us, continue to listen to us. And we ask that you would also just get the word out. Oh, by the way, we are now, um, you don't have to go to SoundCloud anymore. Uh, you can, we'll, we'll, we'll provide that link, of course. But we are also now on Apple Podcast. We're on Stitcher. We're on TuneIn. I'm working on iTunes Radio and Pandora. So we're trying to uh, provide other avenues so we can uh, get the word out to more listeners. So, um, of course, we'll send out the link and we'll post the link on Facebook. But if you're already using like Apple Podcasts or uh, we're going to do Spotify as well, if you're using any of those uh, streaming apps, you can just type in BCRI train of thought and then our podcast will come up and you can listen that that way as well. Cause like I said, we're just trying to get the word out to as many people as we can. So thank you for listening. You have a great week and we hope that we'll have you listening to the next one, which will be episode eight. And it's a critique of James Cole. Thank you for listening. This has been Train of Thought, a podcast of the Biblical Christ Research Institute. 
for our written articles, go to bcri.wordpress.com. And for sermons, go to SoundCloud and search Biblical Christ Church. For comments and questions, email us at bcritrainofthought at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.